This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 90, recorded on October 7th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. And I'm here with a special guest, a, a longtime friend, a former attending of mine when I was a trainee, uh, Dr. Lisa Diller from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Boston Children's Hospital, and um, Harvard University. Welcome, Lisa. Hi there. Nice to see you, Tim. Yeah, good to see you again. So you are a very important person there. You're the vice chair of the Department of Pediatric Oncology at Dana-Farber, the chief medical officer of the uh, Dana-Farber and Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. Uh, You've got a lot of other titles that have to do with uh, survivorship uh, leadership and solid tumor uh, and um, obviously professor of pediatrics at, at Harvard. So congratulations on all those important roles. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> uh, I think what, what grabbed our attention, besides all these great things that you do for that program and for patients, uh, is, is this paper you published um, a few years ago that we'll get into it in a minute uh, that is really fascinating, I think, and, and interesting and, and really provocative. Tell us sort of just briefly, because it has to do with newborn screening, that's the topic of the day. Can we screen for childhood cancer or at least predisposition? Uh, but you you actually have a really strong background in genetic predispositions. You worked with Fred Lee and, and others. Can you tell us sort of the background about this, how you sort of what led up to it, how, what got you thinking about this idea? Because it's not something I had previously thought of and um, you know, what, where did it come from? Sure, so um, it goes way back, Tim. Um, As you might remember, when I was a fellow, I worked in a lab uh, that was run by Stephen Friend. And while I was in that lab, the TP53 gene was identified to be associated with Lee Fermini syndrome. And uh, I thought that was like the cause of childhood cancer and that every kid who had cancer would have an underlying germline variant, uh, pathogenic variant in TP53, what we call the mutation back then. And that would explain children with cancer. It turns out to be oh, somewhere around 10, maybe a little higher percentage of children have a known underlying variant that kind of explains their increased risk of cancer. But way back in those days, uh, Steve had worked, my lab mentor had worked in the laboratory prior to his starting his own lab, had worked in the laboratory that identified the RB1 gene. And I was sure that children with uh, predisposition to retinoblastoma could and should be identified at birth. And I kind of, as part of my fellowship and early years of instructorship, kind of shopped the idea around to various people, thinking about biochemical ways that we might detect it, because biochemical screening is the way newborn screening is done. And everybody I talked to in various labs said, wait for genetics, wait for genetics. This is genetic disease. Soon as genetics kinds of ramps up, this is early 90s, genetics will ramp up, there'll be rapid screening, and we'll be able to real all newborn screening will be done genetically. And then we'll be able to detect children with RB1 variants that predispose them to retinoblastoma. 
So I waited and I waited and I waited and it kind of never really happened. And, you know, we learned a lot about the genome and genetic variation um, over the years and what the problems are with interpreting um, germline variants. Um, and then there was a project um, here at uh, Boston Children's and the Brigham Women's Hospital called the Baby Seek Project, which was doing kind of next-gen sequencing for a number of different genes um, and uh, proposed that to parents. And parents were not that interested. The uptake was quite small. It was very effective in the NICU, in the babies that were in the NICU and coming up with diagnoses. But in the well children, the uptake was poor. There were some patients who were found to have predisposition to various diseases, um, but it was a small sample size. They didn't really find any cancer predisposition that would be associated with a childhood cancer. But that got me thinking, uh, has the time come for RB1? And a spin-off of that baby seat project was a modeling group. They were asking the question, what's the cost effectiveness of genetic testing for using genetics to do newborn screening? And so I went to the modeling group and I said, hey, how about we do a, a model of a panel of genes that would predispose to very, very early onset cancer. So we really focused on those cancers that occur in the first few years of life and included RB1. And that's where this idea came from. That's a long answer, but it goes way back is my, is my uh, answer really. Well, it's a good story that it illustrates really how one thing leads to another, to another, to another. And some ideas have to find the, their right time. And you know, the time you were ahead of the time, you had to sort of wait for time to catch up to your ideas. And um, it's, yeah. it's really fascinating. You know, Tim, I saw a patient, um, Kind of while I was doing this kind of work or thinking about this kind of work, I saw a patient um, in our predisposition clinic um, slash survivorship clinic. So some of our survivors are sort of being co-cared for by the predisposition group and the survivorship group, where I wear both hats. And um, the little boy was blind. He had had uh, bilateral retinoblastoma detected when he was about two and um, ended up with enucleations after radiation didn't control the disease. And he was doing quite well, but when he was, when his baby sister was born, she had immediate genetic testing at birth because the family history was found to carry the familiar predisposition to retinoblastoma and was screened you know, ophthalmologically exams under anesthesia through very early childhood. And she only had cryotherapy or laser therapy for tiny, tiny tumors and has perfect vision. And I just thought like, you know, what happened to him should not happen in a society that has such resources and the ability to do this kind of testing. And it's just a matter of will and background data and money to get it done. That's a really compelling story, case series and of too, but really, right. <laughs> really uh, interesting. Um, wow, impactful, I guess. It really, right. really tells it there. So, so tell us this paper that, that you published in, um, as a brief communication in, in Genetics and Medicine, a Nature Journal just came out this year. Um, what, what was the premise? Um, so I work with a, uh, a decision scientist, a modeler. At the, um, she's in the Department of Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and, and at Harvard Medical School and did her training in the Harvard School of Public Health and at um, the graduate school to work on cost-effectiveness modeling. So that's 
Her name is Jennifer Yeh. She and I have worked together on, on a number of projects really thinking about childhood cancer survivors, helping us um, in the absence of data. If you can't do the study, what would it look like if you could do the study? So she and I, for example, worked on what would happen if you use different ways of screening people for cardiac disease after exposure to anthracycline? What would happen if you did an MRI every 10 years, a cardiac MRI instead of an annual echo? Or what if you pulled back echoes? Or what if you treated everyone with a beta blocker? And we can model that based upon available data. So we've had a longstanding um, collaboration going. And I turned to Jennifer and said, um, well, I have this idea for a panel of genes. And here are the data that we have about the things you would need to know to understand what the impact would be. So it's kind of like if you hypothetically tested a cohort of newborns in the United States. So in the United States, about 3.7 million babies are born a year. And if you create kind of like a hypothetic cohort and you screen them for the genes that my colleagues and I came up with, and you used what we know about the penetrance and prevalence of the diseases and the gene variants, and what would you find in that whole population of 3.7 million newborns over time in terms of how their cancers would present how screening might make a difference, what the outcome would be. And even we even projected forward what their adult lives would be like based upon whether or not they required radiation. So for example, if we modeled uh, something where if you have a TP53 germline variant in the modeled group, you're screened for a variety of tumors. If those tumors are found early, we modeled what we call the stage shift. So instead of presenting with adrenal cortical carcinoma at a high stage with metastatic disease and having a lower survival or requiring chemotherapy, you present at a low stage where you're treated with surgery only, as an example. So the, in the model, it takes into account the stage distribution that we see without screening and the stage distribution we would expect to see with screening and, a, and the subsequent change in therapy based upon that stage shift. So you take those 3.7 million kids and you sort of run them through the model multiple, multiple times, taking into account the kind of uh, uncertainty around each of those estimates I talked about. And you look at kind of how many cancers show up, how many people survive, and what difference you make in terms of survivorship. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense, yes. Um, it's sort of like, it reminds me of, I think it was Einstein who used to talk about having doing a thought experiment, right? Where yes. you, okay, imagine this, imagine that. This is like the ultimate in thought experiment where you're using high-powered mathematical and computer modeling to do a thought experiment and 3.7 million that's infants. correct. It took apparently when we finally put all the inputs in, it took a week to run. <laughs> like the computer ran for a week before we got the output. So yes, a lot's going on in there because we were doing so many genes and different diseases, and each one had its own parameters. But that's correct. And then the other thing I forgot to mention is, of course, the alternative to the model is the current state. So you know, sort of like standard of care, what we do now, we don't screen anyone, what happens versus we screen everyone, the entire population for this panel of genes, what would happen? And what we found is that there would be overall about an 8% reduction in childhood cancer mortality 
and a 50% reduction in mortality among those who carry the germline variant. Things that aren't taken into account of the model, a great example is retinoblastoma because most people survive. Um, it doesn't really enrich a lot in retinoblastoma doing RB1 screening, even though I told you that great story. Uh, we can estimate the number of kids who uh, don't have to have radiation because they were detected early, but we can't really see an impact on mortality in subgroups. And then um, my colleague Jennifer Ye also looked at, because this is her interest, is cost effectiveness. Like how much would this cost to do and whether or not it's even a feasible undertaking in terms of cost. And what we found there is that it's incredibly dependent upon the amount of money that it costs to do genetic testing. The only thing driving the model is not the cost of care of people who are found to carry variants or the cost of screening. It's, it's really all dependent upon the 3.7 million tests that you would have to do in order to, to sort of make this happen versus not doing that. So as the cost of genetic testing goes down or as newborn screening becomes increasingly dependent on genetics so that these are just added genes, the less sort of the, the more cost-effective this becomes. Yeah, again, again, uh, an idea has to find its right time. That's so, right, that's uh, right. That's not exactly just technology, right. but economics. Uh, and so the modeling that was done in this paper was using current costs or Adjusted um, costs? Or? We modeled um, all the costs of the care are in there, the costs of the families that are detected, that sort of thing. And we modeled the genes at, um, at various costs. So we could, that's a nice part about a model, you can vary it. And we, so we modeled it at various costs, but if we model it at $5 a gene, that was sort of like the place we started. So $55 for the panel. Which is Might reasonable. Be <laughs> yeah. Kind of cheap, yeah. But do, yeah. but potentially seeable in the oh yeah. I, yeah. I think so. I think so. Let's continue with the cost discussion, but then let's go back to this mortality survivorship impact discussion. So the, the cost discussion, then you were able to come up with sort of how much per patient or per year per year that lives saved would cost. Tell us about those numbers. Sure. Um so in cost effectiveness research, there's often like a cutoff where people say this is cost effective or this is not. And that's around $100,000 per life year saved. So um, in, in the model of $5 a gene, it, the panel itself doesn't come out cost effective. But if the test could reduce its cost to $20, then it hits the sort of cost effective mark. Now, in newborn screening in general, most pediatricians who are listening to this recognize this, is that cost effectiveness for individual diseases is not really um, the driving notion because so many of the individual diseases that we screen for in newborns are so incredibly rare that if you took the cost of doing that screening or having newborn screening or even adding a specific test to newborn screening and compared that to the effectiveness in terms of the societal gain of having newborn screening, it's harder to sort of come up with that equation. These numbers, another way of saying this is these numbers are usually used to sort of evaluate 
new regimens for hypertension, for like new ways of taking care of type two diabetes and much less um, kind of well accepted for very rare childhood diseases. I think what you're saying is it's not all about the cost. It's not all about the cost and the cost is not too bad. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's not way out there. And for and we are in the process now of drilling down on individual genes among the genes. And um, so we can really do cost effectiveness of individual genes um, and figure out kind of how we could um, hone in on that cost effectiveness a little bit better. Now, there would be other costs of such a program like genetic counselors and uh, costs of more screening uh, in, right. that are being implemented in patients. So did you take those things into account and are they feasible for our society currently? Yeah, so those are good questions. Um, yeah, we took into account the costs of um, screening um, individuals who are found to carry uh, variants of concern, likely pathogenic or pathogenic variants of concern in these genes. That we took into account. What we didn't take into account as much or is the changes in family care. So uh, detection, for example, of a TP53 variant in a newborn might inspire testing in both parents. It might, if the mother's found to be a carrier, it might be incredibly beneficial to her in terms of, or even life-saving because she might undergo a procedure or treatment for avoidance of breast cancer. We did not take that into account. That's a, a, a future endeavor that we hope to do. Also reproductive decision-making, you know, perhaps a family that has a child that's detected to have a TP53 variant might decide not to have other children or might use a donor egg or donor sperm. That was not in the model either. So those are all things that are going to be sort of halo beneficial things of this program. So if anything, you were conservative in your approach in terms of what is what would be the benefit of implementing this program? I think so. I think so. One of the biggest concerns I have that I think it's important to bring up, um, just in case you don't ask about it, is, is the issue of penetrance. So what penetrance means is if you carry this variant, you know, um, that a card carrying uh, genetic pathologist reviews the, the genetic results and says, yes, based upon my read of the currently available data, this is a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. And so if you communicate that to a parent, that changes that parent's view of the child in a sense. The, the child now without having cancer has been defined to have, if you will, a disease or at risk for diseases. It doesn't mean they'll develop cancer. Um, you know, in many of the cases of newborn screening not for cancer, there are children who are found to have uh, changes, um, for example, um, uh, changes that are associated with maybe a very mild phenotype or no phenotype of cystic fibrosis, but they're, the parents been told that your child looks like they have the changes in the CFG, as an example. So how many children are going to walk around with this kind of genetic diagnosis, but never develop cancer? So that's a concern. Um, and another concern is um, that once you get genetic information on a baby, that becomes genetic information for an adult 20 years later or so. So how do we hold on to this information? How does a person who's found to carry a TP53 variant 
um, and goes through screening early in life and then becomes a high school student and then a college student and goes off on their own and doesn't really understand what happened when they were children or it wasn't well communicated. And they go on to reproduce, but somewhere in there, we know that that child has a risk for cancer, that young adult, and that they have that ability to pass that on to their children. And that whole sort of like genetic information going forward, if you do it as a newborn screen, is, is also a puzzle for the future. Yeah, those would seem like very difficult psychosocial societal questions. Is there any parallels in what's being done currently with, uh, with uh, newborn screening or are all the other newborn screening tests definitive, not just a risk? Yeah, um, there are newborn screening tests that are a risk rather than definitive. There are also newborn screening tests that sort of have an initial rule in and then a rule out. And so that there's a literature on that sort of like the concern your child might have CF, come on in, get X, Y, and Z testing, and then your child doesn't have the disease like that that kind of thing. And so how much anxiety does that raise in a family? How much does a family understand? How much resentment is there of the medical care system that you called me and telling you, me my child might have this horrible disease, whatever disease it is. And then somehow you figured out that they don't have it. Do I believe that? Do I understand it? There's a psychosocial literature on that that has a wide range of um, findings. I think maybe one of the more relevant findings is that study BabySeq that I told you about earlier that did next-gen sequencing for about, mm, about 900 genes that were thought to be of relevance in the newborn period or uh, strong enough relevance to a family that they should know about it. It was kind of like whole exome sequencing, but then honed in on specific genes. And those were shared with families. And there were a small number of individuals who were found to either have autosomal carrier state of autosomal recessive diseases or autosomal dominant diseases um, uh, varying kind of impact on child health or family health. And for the most part, the parents were very happy and um, uh, satisfied with having this information and having these results. Now, this is a very select group of individuals because as I mentioned earlier, the uptake of this study was quite low. So it's possible that people who decide to participate in this study were really quite able and willing to understand the implications of genetic risk in a way that if you roll it out to a population may be more difficult. We hope to get funding to do a study um, in a couple of hospital settings where we propose to parents um, we teach them a little bit about retinoblastoma. We propose to parents, would you be interested in having your, your newborn tested for an RB1 variant? And then ask, in addition, there are um, 10 other genes of interest to us without too much information that, um, that you could go for the whole cancer panel, if you will, to just get a sense of kind of, do people say yes to the retinoblastoma because that we explain it all, because you can't really explain every single one, the penetrance, the screening, if it comes up. It's not quite the, the uh, informed consent in a sense that you and I are used to when we're dealing with someone with a disease, when you're trying to do a population-based screening. But to really get a sense before we bring it forward for a statewide pilot of how people feel about kind of a cancer predisposition panel test.
So that that's kind of where we're heading with this. Yeah, I guess it, uh, it may be one of those things that is, I mean, parents who, persons who are pregnant are, are already asked about screening, you know, for Down syndrome or this, that, and the other, do they want those tests? And so they're sort of used to being asked about those, but this, again, those are definitive, uh, whereas right. this is a risk and is very much a different calculus. And you can imagine that we probably as, as, a, as a humanity need to evolve in our in our attitude and thinking toward this as, as these possibilities come up. Right, so, so, you know, the other way to think about it is relative risk, Tim. So like, if I told you that I had a test for a child, um, one of your children or whatever, that um, uh, would tell you that um, your child had a um, hundredfold risk of developing a cancer compared to a kid without that gene, you'd probably be really interested in that. Whereas understanding that a hundredfold risk of a childhood cancer is still a really low risk of developing a childhood cancer is, is hard to capture. And that, yeah. that's the important thing for pediatric oncologists as we do this more and more in predisposition to really kind of distinguish between relative risk and the importance of understanding that a person is at much higher risk than if they didn't have this gene, but that the overall risk in children is can be quite low. So uh, an example might be familial adenomatous polyposis. Um, carrying that uh, a variant of a mutation in FAP puts a child at risk of developing hepatoblastoma during the first few years of life, but that risk is actually very low, although the relative risk is quite high. And so why are we doing the ultrasounds and FAP screenings that we do? It's because of the very high relative risk and the you know sort of small risk, 2%, something like that, of developing hepatoblastoma. Um, so making sure our, our patients understand that as they make choices um, and they enter into screening is quite important. Well, the other important feature of uh, newborn screen is that there is something you can do about the result, right? If it's right. data and, and you can screen. And, and I think your modeling suggested when you screen, there are certain diseases at least for which you can have a positive impact. So let's, we're getting close to time. So let's, let's sort of close our, or wind our conversation down around really the impact and the reason to do this. Uh, and the, I want to get a little bit more granular about that in terms of what you're your models are predicting. So uh, you mentioned an 8% decrease in overall mortality due to childhood cancer. As I'm sure most of our audience is aware, childhood cancer is still the number one cause of death due to disease in children. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously a very important um, uh, imp impact there. So if you decrease that by 8%, and again, I don't want to uh, miss... Um, forget the fact that you also said 50% decrease in mortality of, of those affected patients. What, how many numbers of patients are we talking? What, what, what's the impact on childhood cancer in general? So there's, you know, we estimate what 14,000 new cases per year uh, in the US, would that be 14,000 minus? Uh, that might be one way to look at it. Um, I did it based upon birth cohorts. So you take those 3.7 million kids and you say, how many of them are expected to develop one of the cancers that, that are potentially screened for if you have 
a one of the mutations of interest. So we took sort of like that whole group of cancers, osteosarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, Wilms tumor, neuroblastoma, et cetera, and took that birth cohort and said in that birth cohort, about 1800 children will develop one of those cancers. Okay. And we would reduce the we would reduce the mortality from those 1,800 cancers by 8%. Another way of thinking about it is of those 1,800 kids, somewhere around, uh, um, I think it was about 13% of them or so were found to be carriers. So in that 13% of the 1,800, we're going to reduce their mortality by 50%. I'm trying to get to brass tacks here. How many kids are we going to save? What's your calculation? So uh, Tim, I think about it based upon birth cohorts, because that's how we did the model. So every birth, every year, a group of kids are, are born. They undergo this screening. Some of them are found to carry these variants or not. Um, in the ones who are found to carry variants, they develop disease or not. And if they develop disease, cancer, they survive or not. So in an entire birth cohort, we expect about 1,800 kids to develop the diseases for which these genes would tell us to screen. Of those, about 13% are in the carrier patients. And those carrier patients have a, re a reduction in uh, or an increase in survivorship of about 50%. So overall, it's about 125 kids per birth cohort per year um, will survive where they wouldn't have survived. In our world, we, we work really hard to save each kid. <laughs> right. And, you know, if you think about it the way you were bringing it up, if Let's say, just to make the numbers easy, let's say there are 12,500 kids a year um, with cancer in the United States, like 1% of those kids are going to, you know, like 125 of them are going to be saved by this initiative. So that's, that's pretty good. You know? that's, yeah, that's really great. That could be really impactful. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that I would encourage you to keep your eye on that prize as you try to navigate this complex world of implementing this, because I think that's, that's what's going to have the most impact and speak the most to the legislatures and uh, you know who, the decision makers and the financiers uh, because that's that's each of those is really important lives and that's that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. so congratulations. I think we need to wrap it up, but I really appreciate your being here to walk oh. us through that. And it's a cool study and uh, really really good work. So thank you. Yep. Well, we hope to take it forward. Um, the next steps will be to develop some more data, both within the model and kind of real data based upon newborn blood spots and looking at them and showing we can really sort of find these variants in kids who develop cancer and then bring that to statewide pilot. That's what we're hoping, hoping to do. That's how things roll out in newborn screening. So well, we look forward to watching your progress. Thank you. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children and perhaps by creating, helping to create novel newborn screening technologies. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonc, 
Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.